Have you ever found yourself in a sudden and perilous situation? One Sunday after church, while we were in Pennsylvania, I decided to return a video we'd rented because a snowstorm was on the way, and I didn't think we'd be able to get into town the next day. It had already started snowing, and as I headed toward town, uh, not far from our house, there was a steep hill going down into a ravine, and uh, as I went down that hill, not really there, that fast, my, uh, my van began to go in a spin. And of course, the front wheels are always going around, and I didn't think about putting it into neutral, and I uh, wasn't swerving anywhere, but I wasn't able to stop or really control. We are just going right straight. And I can remember, I think that I said, Lord, I'm going to hit that guardrail. And the guardrail had a blunt end on it, and of course it was preventing you from going further down into the gully. Well, I I did hit the guardrail. And as if in slow motion, uh, when that happened, I see the, the dashboard caving towards me, and by the time my van stopped, the blunt end of that guardrail was sitting between me and the passenger seat. And if it had been a a foot uh, farther to the left, I might not be here this morning. And uh, needless to say, that was a little bit uh, scary. Well, I left and walked home because it wasn't that far from home. I was a little bit uh, shook up. I didn't have a scratch on me. And later, a friend from church uh, went by, uh, saw my car there and a police car there. He stopped to see if I was all right. And the police officer said to him, he must have had an angel sitting in the passenger seat. Well, I would sort of agree with that. The Holy Spirit was in me, and the Lord was certainly looking over me. Uh, But uh, that certainly was a uh, sudden and perilous situation. And through life, uh, we will all run into those kind of situations, hopefully not maybe that serious or scary, but probably we will. Uh, at some point in time. And our text today narrates to us a life-threatening situation that arose suddenly and perilously in the lives of Jesus' disciples, which caused them great fear. But Jesus was with them, and he performed a miracle that rescued them from their danger. And this is the first of five, uh, excuse me, four miracles that Mark now records running through chapter 5, and in them the Lord Jesus will demonstrate his authority over nature, over demons, over disease, and over human death itself. Now it's quite amazing today that, that some scholars will believe that Jesus healed people, that he cast out demons, but they fail to accept the miracles that he did in the realm of nature. To them, these border on the mythological. However, if we really believe uh, Jesus is who the Bible says he is, why would we have a problem with that? For instance, do we believe Colossians 1.16, which says of Christ, for by him, All things were created that are in heaven and on earth. And then in verse 17, and he's before all things, and by him all things consist or hold together in that creation. 
If he has the power to create out of nothing and sustain what he creates, why should he not have power to quell a storm? Well, as we study this miracle over uh, nature in Mark's gospel, let's find out what it teaches us about the person of Christ and how he helps us in the storms and dangers of life. Our Heavenly Father, we pray today your blessing on your word. We're thankful, Lord, that this shows us uh, without doubt that Jesus was more than a mere man. He was the Son of God. He was the God-man who had power over nature itself. The Lord also tells us that in the fearsome times of life, you are with us and uh, you help us uh, in those situations if we will set aside our fear and put our faith in the Lord Jesus. Bless us as we look to your word, we ask today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's first of all take a look here at the setting of this miracle, which begins in Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 4, verse 35. And what we have as we read through this story is an eyewitness account. There is evidence here uh, that somebody uh, saw all of this happen. Somebody was present with the Lord Jesus. And the stories we find in the Word of God, the narratives about the life of Christ, they don't just come out of man's imagination. All three synoptic gospels provide a record of this miracle with slight variations as you would get from three different perspectives if people were to write down a narrative or a story. But Mark was not one of Christ's disciples, so how would he have information from an eyewitness such as we have here? Well, we know that he was very closely associated with Peter. Uh, Peter uh, was uh, kind of a, a teacher to him, uh, a companion to him, and he was Peter's disciple. So what we find in Mark's gospel probably is a lot of stories that he narrated to Mark because he was present there and he's given his eyewitness account. And in this account, there are a number of items that indicate that someone, probably Peter, witnessed what happened. For instance, the time of the day is mentioned pretty exactly. He says there are other little boats that accompany them when they left the area. What purpose would that have except just to realize somebody was there and he saw those things? He mentioned that Jesus is asleep uh, and he's in the stern of the boat and he's resting his head on a cushion. And then along with that, uh, he mentions that the disciples rebuke the Lord Jesus, and maybe Peter's actually the one that uh, confronted him about what was going on. And we find their terror is mentioned here about the storm itself, as well as what it reveals uh, when they find out what Jesus is able to do in this situation. So Mark's recounting uh, something that somebody saw and conveyed to him. Now, he describes what happened at the end of a very long day, on the same day when evening had come. All right, well, what day? Well, let's review here. Uh, let's back up a little bit. This is the same day that um, the Lord Jesus' mother and brother showed up when he was ministering to people, he was teaching. They want to relieve him from ministry. They want to take him home and, and help him to recuperate. That would be the same day that the religious leaders accuse him of being empowered by Satan to cast out demons. 
And then later that day, he comes to the shore of Galilee for more teaching. And as here, he taught the parables of the soil, the lamp, the scattered seed, the mustard seed. So it's been a really long day for the Lord Jesus. It's now uh, at the end of the day, the evening has come, and uh, they're going to get away from the, the crowd. Now, we don't know exactly the motive for Jesus crossing the, the lake and retreating from the crowd, probably just to get away for some rest, maybe a little recuperation, which he was capable of doing on his own without his family, and, uh, and spending some time teaching his disciples, that small group of 12, in a uh, more direct manner. Now, on this occasion, they would be traveling from Capernaum, to the west side of Galilee, which was the region of Decapolis back in that day. It was less populated, and it was uh, also inhabited uh, by more Gentiles than um, Galilee would have been. And Jesus will later return to this place. He'll do some preaching and teaching. Now, when the crowd disperses, we're told here that disciples set out with Jesus in the boat, which likely was probably one of their fishing boats. And it appears they don't gather any provisions. Uh, They just join Jesus in the boat, and from there they sail off to the other side of the sea. Now, uh, believe it or not, um, archaeologists have discovered one of these fishing-type boats in the Sea of Galilee, and so we have a pretty exact idea of what they looked like. They were probably about 25 feet long, but they were only three and a half uh, feet deep, so really not that deep. It would have had a single triangular sail and probably a few oars, as well as uh, storing some of the fishing supplies that they would need. And in the stern or the back of that boat, there might be a bench And on the bench, there would be a cushion or a pillow type thing. And you could rest there if need be. And of course, this is where Jesus went to lay down as they started out. Uh, Mark tells us that those other little boats were accompanying them, probably full of people who were also wanting to follow Jesus wherever he went. We don't know what happened to them. Uh, We kind of assume that they either made it somehow back to shore or... Uh, when the sea was quelled, that's what saved them as well. Now, while this is happening and while they're out uh, on the lake, a sudden and perilous storm uh, comes up, and this evokes great fear, of course, in the disciples. Now, as we've mentioned, uh, the, the New Testament calls this the Sea of Galilee, uh, it really was a freshwater lake, but it was a large body of water. And anytime you have a large body of water, the Bible calls it a sea. And this particular uh, lake was about, it was over 600 feet below sea level. It was surrounded on most sides by steep hills, so it kind of uh, created a basin, and the wind could just funnel down suddenly on this and cause one of these storms that was notorious uh, for the types of sudden storms that would come upon it. And uh, the danger of it is now described for us uh, as they're out there in the middle of the lake. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. 
Um, Luke uses a term that describes this as a furious gale. Matthew uses another term, which actually means to, to shake, and we get our English term seismic from that particular Greek word. And the storm then created kind of a seismic convulsion of waves that began pouring into the boat. And remember, it's only three and a half feet deep, and some of that would have been down in the water. So it wouldn't take long for even three-foot waves to begin coming into the boat. You know that recently our family was in a huge ship on our cruise, probably four or five times the size of the Titanic. And on the way to Bermuda, the waves were about eight and a half feet. Probably not that great for, you know, the ocean. It can have huge waves in a storm. But even that enormous vessel swayed enough to make me feel a little queasy. And I only can imagine what the disciples were, were sensing in this storm. Although it may not have raged quite that high, it certainly was a dangerous situation. We have to remember that some of these men, maybe as many as seven of them, were experienced fishermen. They probably were somewhat used to this happening, but you would get off the water as soon as possible. But in this situation, they're frantically trying to trim the sail and stay afloat. I'm sure as the waves beat into the boat, starting to fill it with water, uh, disciples were furiously bailing water out. Um, <clears throat> maybe some of them were trying to row to get to shore, uh, and the fear level was probably accelerating by the moment. So in that type of situation, what are you supposed to do with, when your fear is just growing uh, rapidly? What would any of us have done if we had been there as one of his disciples? Well, very likely the same thing they did. But would you have wondered, as you're maybe bailing or rowing or trying to control the sail, what in the world Jesus was doing sleeping in the back of the boat? How could he even do that when uh, the waves are so furious? Well, one reason is he was probably really exhausted from the day. We've seen all that he did during that particular day. That shows us his humanity. He was a man who grew tired. He grew weary uh, from uh, his ministry. He was really tired out. He needs sleep just like we do. So he was uh, there uh, sleeping heavily, and this didn't really even bother him. But then again, we might add the idea of the serenity of divine omnipotence, as one uh, commentator noted. The God-man could rest in any type of situation because of who he was and what he could do. However, the disciples were lacking faith in this whole situation. Jesus kind of hones in on that. And when everything's calm again, the first thing Jesus said to them is, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Well, we probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of faith in that situation either. We're trying to do everything we can from uh, sinking or capsizing. They were overcome with a peril 
of the situation. They're at their wit's end to know what to do about it, and fear was controlling them. Now, we have to think, they've been with Jesus for several months now. They had been witnessing his power to heal people of all kinds of diseases, uh, all kinds of ailments. They knew he had power of the kingdom of darkness because he regularly cast demons out of people. So didn't they believe or realize that he could save them in this kind of a situation? Well, if they did, uh, why would they be so fearful? So the Lord is going to open up to them a whole new avenue of his power of his authority, and something that they have not yet experienced, and it's just going to broaden uh, their concept of who he is. But note here that something makes it even worse. Okay, in verse 38, he's in the stern of the boat, he's asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and they said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? It's not, teacher, help us, we're perishing. It's, don't you even care? The idea is, how can you be sleeping there? How can you be so unaware of what's going on? And so what they do is they accuse the Lord Jesus of not caring about them in this situation. Their focus is not really on Jesus and what he's capable of doing, but on themselves, their inability to do anything to save them, and their fear is trumping their faith. And of course, the disciples were not fully grasping the wonder and the power of Jesus. They'd seen this in different ways. They accepted him as a great teacher. Uh, they recognized that he was a healer. He was an exorcist. Uh, in this way, he was like the prophets of old. Uh, they recognized his authority in all these different ways, but they could not put two and two together and realize that he could also control a perilous situation such as this one and uh, uh, the chaos of the sea was really nothing he could not handle. And of course, if we had been among them, we would not have done the math either. Furthermore, they had witnessed his care and his compassion for people in all these situations where he cast out demons and he healed them and he helped them. But now they accuse him of not caring. And, of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. Well, at this point, Jesus is uh, fully aroused. I'm sure that they probably didn't just speak to him. They might have been shaking him to get him away. And now we have uh, how he quells the storm. He calms their fear of the storm, but he also incites in them another type of fear, which is a correct attitude toward him. Now, in verse 39, very simply, uh, Mark describes what happens. Jesus arose. He's fully awake now. And he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace be still. All right. These words are really kind of interesting. They're unusual, 
uh, using these words uh, in a situation where you're addressing inanimate forces. Because they're the same terms that he's used previously to rebuke demons and, and to tell them to be quiet. And this has caused some to believe that he was confronting the storm itself as an evil force threatening him and his disciples and perhaps even demonic forces behind that attempting to capsize the boat and end the ministry. But it's interesting that these are the same words he used to rebuke demons and tell them to quit witnessing about him. Now the sea always represents chaos and peril, and it it always presents the possibility of sudden change that can be perilous to human life. Uh, But in the words of G. Campbell Morgan, there ought to be no panic in the heart of man when he knows Christ. We may be sure that Christ is at the heart of every storm. And because Christ was with them, they should not have really feared. Now, the words of rebuke here are very powerful, unlike uh, the song, Master the Tempest is Raging. Are you familiar with that song? It's a very beautiful song. It has a heart-stirring message, and the crescendo of the refrain leads up to Jesus being the master of ocean and earth and skies. And then it mellows out in the rebuke, peace be still. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not how Jesus said it. He didn't say, peace be still, peace be still. He said, be quiet, be muzzled, literally. So Jesus rebuked the storm, he rebuked the wind, he rebuked the waves in that strong, powerful voice of the creator God, and everything immediately was back to normal, perhaps even less than normal. The wind ceases, the sea calms down, the tense of the verbs that are used there indicate an immediate and sudden response. Now, the storms in Galilee could diminish almost as rapidly as they arose, but when Jesus made this command, they immediately obeyed his voice. And we know how beautiful our finger lakes can be when they are serene and crystal clear. That's the way the Sea of Galilee ended up the second Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. And that showed that his voice was the voice, not of a man, but the Son of God. So that's uh, how Jesus showed his power, his authority, even over nature, by just quelling that storm immediately. Now, That's not the end of the story, however, because Jesus now deals with the disciples. He addresses their fear. Excuse me. In verses 40 and 41. He asks the question, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So he realizes that their fear is 
overwhelming their faith. Now, obviously, it's not that they had no faith at all. They believed that he was authoritative as a teacher. They believed that the works that he did were from the power of God, that God was working through him. They're not at the point where they understand that he is God in flesh, but they, so they, they understand much about him, what they understand, they believe, but they're not grasping fully who he is. And in this situation that called for faith, they were overwhelmed with fear, forgetting who it was in the boat with him. They saw Jesus, the great man. They saw him like a prophet and a teacher, maybe even uh, Messiah at this point, but they failed to see him as the son of God, God man. And in this incident, Jesus shows himself in a way they had not yet experienced. Now, let me read to you uh, a comment. Control of the elements is even more extraordinary and inexplicable than the restoration of suffering human beings and is in the Old Testament a frequently noted attribute of God in distinction from human beings who find themselves helpless before the forces of nature. And we can go to the Psalms and other Old Testament scriptures that point out that this is God who's capable of doing this. Indeed, the psalmist states in Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Jesus is showing he is like God in this situation. But their faith has not arrived uh, at that point, and their response, of course, indicates this. Now, as Jesus asked this question of them, they feared exceedingly. So they feared the storm, but now they fear the person who quelled the storm. That's a different kind of fear. It's a fear of realization. It's a fear of, of awe. And uh, it exceeds the, the fear that they felt, the kind of fear they felt when they were in peril of their lives. So they're showing a reference, a new understanding of who Jesus is when they ask the question, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Can this be a mere man? Do we really understand who this person is? And so it begins to make them think in a way that, wow, we haven't seen anything yet. There's a lot more to this person that we need to grasp, that we need to know, and it just caused them to to awe in their heart how amazing this person is. And so this new realization of the Lord is going to draw them closer to him, deepen their relationship, and begin to spark the idea that this isn't just a man. And it ought to inspire our thoughts in the same way. So let's draw some applications from what we see here. And first of all, what are we taught about the Lord Jesus? Now, the main teaching 
centers on on his deity. Not so much that in the storms of life, the Lord's with us, that's there, but it is an evidence, really the first evidence uh, that clearly should lead you to that conclusion that this is God. Now, some of the prophets of old were given the ability to heal people, even raise someone from the dead. They performed miracles, especially Moses and Elijah and uh, Elisha. And some of these miracles were in the realm of nature, but it's clear in those situations that the God of heaven was responsible for them, not the man himself. God told them what to do, or he told them what was going to happen, or they prayed to God for it to happen. It's never an indication that that person was God. They were working for God. But in this situation, Jesus himself does not call upon God the Father. He doesn't have to because the power to do this is in himself, is part of his nature. So in that sense, he's unlike the prophets of old. He's the agent of creation. He's the one who sustains it. Nature itself is under his power and his authority. It's teaching us the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that the disciples were exceedingly awed by this situation. It it was something they never experienced before, and they probably hadn't even thought about, as we see in their response. And if nature itself bows to the Lord Jesus, what reason would we have not to? And too often I think uh, that we think of Jesus more of a man than the Son of God, the all-powerful creator. Secondarily, it does teach that Christ is with us in all situations of life that might arouse fear in us or cause us perhaps to doubt his care. And he will deliver us because he's compassionate, because he's all-powerful. As the English cleric Jeremy Taylor said, we are far safer in the middle of a storm with God than anywhere else without him. And we need to be thinking of that whenever we go through hardships in life. So what are we taught here about ourselves? Well, first of all, we often respond to situations as the disciples did, with great fear and consternation and little faith. We can only see the problem from our our feeble perspective, which might be quite fearful or uh, scary or perilous. But instead of calling upon the Lord first, realizing he's allowed that situation to come upon us, we try to figure it out ourselves. Uh, We try everything we can to get a resolution, and we forget that he is there to help us. He has a purpose in this. And if he put us in it, he can deliver us out of it. So we are going to face many storms of life of all different kinds of nature. Sometimes they will be perilous. Sometimes they just weigh on our minds or our emotions. We may not know what they will be in regard to. They will come upon us suddenly at times. Um... And they're always going to induce a response, either a response of fear 
or a response of faith. And it's up to us the response we're going to give to that situation. He is the almighty ruler of all things. He's the only one we should fear, and we should do so by exercising unyielding faith in all that he allows to come into our life. Heavenly Father, we do pray today you will bless us with the words of this story uh, of what Jesus was able to do in a very perilous situation. And Lord, we are thankful that those times are very few in our lives. But when they come, Lord, help us to put our faith and trust in you. We realize, Lord, that we kind of have to work the details out, uh, but we need to depend upon you to give us the wisdom, uh, the strength, uh, and uh, the faith to trust you in all situations. We're thankful, Lord, that this story revealed to the disciples and to us that Jesus was not merely a good man. He was the Son of God. He was God in flesh, the God-man, who lived a perfect life and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Lord, help us always to view him in that proper perspective, uh, which enables us to put our faith in him no matter what may happen in our lives. Bless us as we continue now in Jesus' name. Amen.